0: You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. For some of us, it could be that the doctrine of the Trinity makes very little sense at all. The idea that God is both one and three seems like a total contradiction, like saying one plus one plus one equals one. It just doesn't make sense. Or it could be that so far your experience of the Trinity is limited to some... Bad analogies, as if a three leaf clover or water is the thing that most accurately captures the glorious and majestic God that we worship. Um, Have you ever heard one of those analogies and found it dissatisfying? Or have you ever tried to explain the Trinity with one of those analogies and found that it wasn't all that convincing? Uh, I wonder if our overuse of bad analogies has left us with the impression that our God is a watery, three-headed leaf, which starts to sound pretty bizarre. Or maybe your experience of the Trinity has largely been of one of um, over-complicated arguments about obscure terms like substance, essence, and consubstantiality, all of which can leave us with the impression that the doctrine of the Trinity is really just the heritage of a bunch of overly pedantic dead guys. And if that's true, then the doctrine of the Trinity is at best trivial and unnecessary or at worst, it leaves Christianity with a major intellectual weakness. Have a look at what prominent atheist Richard Dawkins says about the Trinity. You'll see it on page nine of your booklets. He says, rivers of medieval ink, not to mention blood, have been squandered over the mystery of the Trinity, and in suppressing deviations such as the Arian heresy. Arius of Alexandria, in the 4th century AD, denied that Jesus was consubstantial, i.e., of the same substance or essence with God. What on earth could that possibly mean? You are probably asking. Substance? What substance? What exactly do you mean by essence? Very little seems the only reasonable reply. According to Dawkins, this doctrine is built upon obscure arguments about trivial terms, terms such as consubstantial, that are almost entirely meaningless, and people paid for it with their blood. Uh, Dawkins goes on to quote the US President Thomas Jefferson, who said this about the Trinity, Ridicule is the only weapon which can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. And no man ever had a distinct idea of the Trinity. It is the mere abracadabra of the mountebanks calling themselves the priests of Jesus. Now, if you like me are wondering what a mountebank is, it's somebody who tricks people out of money. Uh, it's a snake oil salesman. And so Jefferson is saying that the doctrine of the Trinity is nothing more than a mental magic trick, an abracadabra designed to trick people into giving their money to the church. And he says the doctrine of the Trinity is an unintelligible proposition. It's religious hocus-pocus. And so, says Jefferson, the doctrine of the Trinity ought to be ridiculed, laughed all of which can leave us with the impression that the doctrine of the Trinity is the major Achilles heel of the Christian faith. Have you ever felt even just a little embarrassed by the doctrine of the Trinity, as if you kind of know that it doesn't really make sense, but you're meant to believe it anyway? Well, I want to start this series of talks on the doctrine of the Trinity by showing you why the doctrine of the Trinity is important. And not just important, but that it is of central importance, critical importance, of crucial importance. And to do that, I want to take you back in time. I want to take you back before COVID. I want to take you back before the internet, back before MySpace. I want to take you back even before the discovery of electricity. I want to take you back to sometime around the 5th century A.D., The city of Rome has been sacked. The Roman Empire is starting to collapse. But before we go back to the 5th century together, I need to give you a warning. Consider me your flight attendant, giving you the safety briefing before we take off. And the warning comes from the novelist L.P. Hartley, who wrote this in the novel, The Go-Between. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Over the next couple of days, we're going to be listening to voices from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 13th, and 16th centuries, not to mention the Bible itself, and some of these voices are going to speak and think differently to us. I'll do my best to introduce some of them as we go along, but even though they might seem a little bit foreign to us, there is a deep and rich heritage there for us to learn from. So, with that said, come back with me in time to sometime around the 5th century, and we're going to look at what's called the Athanasian Creed. It was written around the 5th century. Uh, If you were paying attention in that video before, um, that St. Patrick character actually finished by quoting from the Athanasian Creed, otherwise known as the Kukumke vault, and this is what it says. Whoever desires to be saved should, above all, hold to the Catholic universal faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic universal faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing their essence... For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal their majesty co-eternal. Now, there are probably a couple of initial responses that you might have to what we just read in the Athanasian Creed. Um, At one level, it is quite a nice little summary of the doctrine of the Trinity, one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing the essence, equal in glory and co-eternal in majesty. Uh, you might also be wondering about the word Catholic uh, and when it says Catholic it doesn't actually have anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church which didn't actually exist back in the 5th century. When it says Catholic it means universal. Uh, I've put that in the brackets, which is to say that it means it's agreed upon by all Christians. But that leads to the thing that really stands out to me. Did you notice that it basically said, if you don't hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, you aren't saved? It literally says, anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, does that sound like a bit of an overstatement to you? It could sound like it's saying that you need to articulate a doctrine of the Trinity in order to be saved. And that's a bit problematic. I mean, how many of us would be able to articulate a doctrine of the Trinity as it's described in the Athanasian Creed? What about children? Well, I don't think that's actually what it's saying. It's not saying you're not saved if you can't articulate a doctrine of the Trinity. What it's saying is that our salvation depends upon the Trinity. Our salvation depends upon the Trinity. How so? Well, at the very heart of the Christian faith, at the very heart of our salvation, is the reality that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins that's it, isn't it? Um, Have a look at how the Apostle puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, "'For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures.' This is the reality that lies at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins.' But the fact is, only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees knew this as well as anyone. And so have a look at how the Pharisees respond in a story where Jesus forgives a man his sins. Have a look. Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins makes sense. The only person who can forgive a sin is the person sinned against. But here's the point I want to draw your attention to. If Jesus truly has paid for our sins and only God can forgive sins, then Jesus must be God. If Jesus is not God, then who paid for your sins? And to say that Jesus is God is actually a Trinitarian claim. It's a claim about who God is in Jesus and who he is in relation to the one he called his heavenly Father and the one he called the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is not God, we are not saved. The gospel makes no sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's the point. The heart of the doctrine of the Trinity is the confession that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. And that is exactly what the Athanasian Creed is saying. A denial of the Trinity is itself a denial of the Gospel, a denial of our own salvation. So, why is the doctrine of the Trinity important? The first reason it's important is for your salvation. Your salvation is built upon and depends upon the triunity of God. But there's also a second reason why this doctrine is so important. It's important not just for our salvation, but actually for the entirety of our Christian faith. It's important for your faith. We're at 2.2 on page 12. And let me ask you this, if you had to write a creed, or if you had to write a statement of faith, what would you start with? What would you put first? Um, Maybe you'd put creation, because, well, I don't know, that comes first in the Bible. Um, Or maybe you'd start with the Bible, because the Bible, as the Word of God, is the foundation for our knowledge of God. Or you could even start with Jesus, because actually the whole Bible is all about Jesus, and He sits at the center of everything. Well, what's interesting is that most of the great creeds and statements of faith written over the centuries actually start with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, We've already seen that with the Athanasian Creed, but it's also the case with what's called the 39 Articles. (laughs) The 39 Articles were written in 1571 by a guy called Thomas Cranmer, uh, and he wrote them as a statement of faith what was then known as the Church of England, now known as the Anglican Church. <laughs> ah, <Yeah>, there's one. <laughs> um, I'm a you. Um, this is how the 39 Articles start: of faith in the Holy Trinity, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Why do the 39 articles start with the doctrine of the Trinity? They start there because the thing that makes Christianity Christian is who our God is. Who our God is determines and shapes every part of our faith. Have a look at what theologian Michael Reeves says about this. What makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God. Which God we worship, that is the article of faith that stands before all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself and every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation and salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation and salvation of this God, the triune God. What he's saying here is that every part of our faith, whether it be creation, scripture or salvation, everything, all of it, depends upon the identity of our triune God. Uh, One way of thinking about this is to imagine the entire Christian faith as a spider web of interconnected beliefs. Uh, So, we've got uh, beliefs about things like creation, scripture, predestination the end times, even things like marriage and relationships, and all of these different beliefs hang in an interconnected way. And maybe we'd put the gospel at the centre, because as we saw, it's of first importance. Um, There's a little diagram there in your booklets. And if you put the gospel at the centre of the web, then the doctrine of the Trinity is like the anchor point for the whole web. It's the thing that anchors everything, and it determines the shape of the whole web. Now, some things will be more immediately connected to the doctrine of the Trinity than others, but it's still the anchor for everything. So, why is the doctrine of the Trinity important? It's important not just for your salvation, but actually for your entire faith. It's the anchor point to every part of our faith. But there is at least one more reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is of critical importance. And that's for your worship. For your worship. See, the purpose of theology is never for the sake of knowledge in and of itself. The purpose of theology is doxology. Praise. The purpose of theology is not only to know God, but to love, adore, and to worship Him, it's not just cerebral; it's relational. And it's in the doctrine of the Trinity that we actually learn to name and to know God as He really is. My um, my surname is Cleworth, C L E worth. Uh, throughout my whole life, people have mispronounced my name. Um, it's particularly bad in high school. Every lesson, they you know read the role. And more often than not, I'd be called Charles Clayworth, Clemworth, or even my (laughs) favourite, Clentworth. But here's the thing. If somebody mispronounced my name, that's because they didn't know me very well. As soon as somebody gets to know me, they learn that my name is Cleworth. In the doctrine of the Trinity, we learn to name and to know God as He really is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means relating to God as He really is, worshipping Him as He really is. So why is the doctrine of the Trinity important? Three reasons. For your salvation, for your faith, and for your worship. But at this point, you might still be wondering what the doctrine of the Trinity actually is because we still haven't properly defined it. And at one level, that's really what we're trying to do over all these talks. But it's worth establishing a bit of a starting point so that we know what we're talking about. So, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? In a sentence, the doctrine of the Trinity is to know, love and worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do I say know, love, and worship? Well, it's really for the reason that we just saw before. The purpose of theology is not merely to know about God, or even just to know God, at least in an intellectual sense, but to love Him, to worship Him, which means our doctrine is incomplete if it doesn't terminate in the love and worship of our God. But it's not simply the knowledge, love and worship of God, it's the knowledge, love and worship of this God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, Have a listen to how the 4th century theologian Gregory of Nazianzus puts it. When I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. But say you want a little more flesh on the bones. Say you want more than just a little sentence. Let me give you three. And I say three because I think the doctrine of the Trinity can really be summarized by learning to say three things. The first is this. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms the existence of one God. This first point's pretty straightforward. There is only one God, not many, not three, one. But we also need to go on to say a second thing. The doctrine of the Trinity identifies the Father, Son and Holy Spirit with the one God. Now, this point brings a little more complexity. And what we're saying is that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are each identical with the one god which is to say there is no god beyond between or beside the father son and holy spirit the father is the one god through and through likewise the son is the one god through and through and the same for the spirit they aren't just parts of god or even aspects of God, each of them is the one God, through and through. But then there's a third thing we need to add. The doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes the Father, Son and Holy Spirit by the relations between them. This third thing is saying that the Father is Father because He's the Father of the Son. That's what makes Him the Father. His relation to the Son is the thing that distinguishes Him from the Son. Likewise, the Son is the Son, because He is the Son of the Father. And again, for the Spirit. The Spirit is Spirit, not because He is a Spirit, but because He is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son. The relations between them are what distinguish them from one another, even as each of them is identical with the one God. That's the doctrine of Trinity. Now, if some of that went a little over your head, don't worry. We're going to spend the rest of our time together over the whole weekend really essentially gaining fluency in saying those three things and learning what it means to say those three things. But it could be that at this point you'd really love a diagram. Some way of just clearly representing those three things we just said. But this is where we start to run into the problem with diagrams at least when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. See, no diagram or analogy or illustration can properly communicate God's triune nature. Here's why. Because when we're looking for a diagram or an analogy, what we're doing is searching for something in this creation that represents or captures something of who the triune God is. But the problem is that God is totally unlike creation. He is not created. He is the creator, which means that nothing in this creation can adequately represent or communicate the triune nature of our God. Sometimes diagrams or analogies, they might capture an aspect of who God is But no creaturely representation can do that comprehensively or fully, which is why all these analogies about water and three-leaf clovers actually end up being more unhelpful than they are helpful. Have a look at what Gregory of Nazianzus says. Though I have examined the question in private so busily and so often, searching from all points of view for an illustration of this profound matter, they they wanted illustrations even in the 4th century, Um, he says, I have failed to find anything in this world with which I might compare the divine nature. So, as we set out on this journey together, be careful of analogies and illustrations. Um, They will often do more harm than good. That leads us to the next stage in our journey together. So far, we've explored why the Trinity is important and we've introduced what the doctrine of the Trinity actually is, but sometimes it can be helpful to clarify what something is by explaining what it is not. And so, what I want to do next is explain what the doctrine of the Trinity is not. And in particular, what I want to do is outline some of the dangers and pitfalls when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. And what we're going to see is that there are two main dangers to be aware of. On the one hand is what we might call mere monotheism, where we overemphasize God's oneness. And on the other side is what we might call tritheism where we overstate God's threeness. Mono, one, tri, three. Have a look at how the theologian Colin Gunton explains it. As in all theology, we are on a knife edge, or we might say a narrow path with precipices on each side. On one side, we deny the unity of God and make it appear that there are three gods. On the other we cause the distinctions of the three to disappear into some underlying, undifferentiated deity. So you can imagine us walking along a narrow path where on one side lies the sharp precipice of mere monotheism and on the other side lies tritheism. These are the twin dangers that we will need to keep in our sights as we journey towards knowing, loving, and worshipping God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But let's push a little more into each of these dangers. What do we mean when we say mere monotheism? It's the belief that when it comes to God, there's really just one actor, a single actor, a single actor who creates, speaks, and saves. And it's the belief that really we only have one undifferentiated relationship with God. It's the idea that we relate to God in a flat, one-dimensional way. Um, The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they become an unnecessary appendix to the one God. Uh, They are a non-essential accessory to a flat, one-dimensional God. Uh, That's what we're talking about when we say mere monotheism. And for one theologian called Karl Rahner, the great majority of Christians are in danger of falling into mere monotheism. Um, Have a look at what he says. Despite their orthodox confession of the Trinity, Christians are, in their practical life, almost mere monotheists. We must be willing to admit that, should the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false, the major part of religious literature could well remain virtually unchanged. What's he saying there? He's saying that when push comes to shove, most Christians simply believe in a vague sense of God, a single entity, rather than the triune God, who is known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, He makes that point by explaining that if the doctrine of the Trinity was dropped as false, then really not all that much would change for Christians. We would still go on praying to God, believing that God became man and that God saved us, rather than praying to our Heavenly Father and believing that the Son became a man and that we are saved by the Son through the Spirit. Let me ask you, do you think it matters that it was the Son, specifically, who became flesh? Or is it just that God became man? There is a difference there. Let me ask you, what do you believe in? When push comes to shove, do you relate to God in a flat, one-dimensional way? Or do you not believe just in God, but in this God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's the danger of mere monotheism, but what about tritheism? Well, it's just the flip side of mere monotheism. It's the belief that really there are three different actors who each do different things and that really we have three different relationships with each of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They are essentially three different subjects who are simply united in some kind of divine community. Have a look at what the theologian Robert Lethem says about this. He says, in the West, in more recent times, a social model of the Trinity has come into prominence, bringing into sharp focus the distinctiveness of the three. When this is so, there is often a noticeably loose, almost tritheistic sounding tendency. The Trinity is frequently compared to a human family or to three co-equals engaged in a dance around one another. Now, I've highlighted the word dance there. Why? I want to show you something. It's no secret that we here at Grace City, we are huge fans of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, um, I don't think more than a few weeks go by where he isn't quoted in some form on a Sunday. I personally have a huge amount of love and respect uh, for the way C.S. Lewis thinks and communicates, but have a listen to what he says about the Trinity in mere Christianity. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Now, did you notice that little word, dance, that we saw in the previous quote from Robert Lethem? Now, Lethem doesn't specifically mention C.S. Lewis, but is it possible that Lewis's language tends towards emphasising the threeness of God as though there were three separate actors engaged in some kind of dance. Letham calls this a social model of the Trinity. But we can go a little further, because C.S. Lewis is probably only second to Tim Keller when it comes to Grace City's favourite thinkers. Tim Keller. And in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller essentially takes what C.S. Lewis says, but then he pushes it even further. Um, have a look at what Keller says, each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. Ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. Um, Did you notice that same little word, dance, but this time we also get the word community introduced? Have a look at what uh, theologian Matthew Barrett says about that word, community. He says, notice what words social Trinitarians use to define the Trinity. Community. The Trinity is a community or society, a cooperation of divine persons, each with his own center of consciousness and will. And he says if there are three separate subjects, can they really be one God? Now, please don't at all hear me saying that C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller are heretics or somehow anti-Trinitarians. They're brilliant thinkers uh, and defenders of the faith. We will continue using them and quoting them to our heart's content in church. But is it possible that each of them have a distinct lean towards a more tritheistic view of God? And is it even remotely possible that we at Grace City have been influenced by that kind of thinking? Um, Could it be that at times we have fallen into the trap of thinking of God as three separate actors, as really having three different relationships with the Father, Son and Spirit? Over this weekend, we're going to see that they aren't three separate subjects, nor are they even just three subjects engaged in the deepest imaginable community of love. There is one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, those are the twin dangers of mere monotheism and tritheism. And over this weekend, we are going to try and walk the narrow path between those two pitfalls, holding both God's oneness and His threeness in tension. And in that sense, we are going to need to continually make a lot of micro-adjustments as we walk this narrow path together. You know, when you're um, driving along in the car, you never actually just hold the wheel straight. You constantly make a lot of little tiny micro-adjustments to keep the car straight on the road. When it comes to the Trinity, we have got to need to do the same thing. We're going to need to constantly make micro-adjustments to stay on the narrow path between mere monotheism and tritheism. Why? Because we are created and finite we're also still impacted and corrupted by sin, this side of the new creation. And that means we will never get things perfectly right. We're never done when it comes to understanding who God is. There is always more to learn and to grow and to change. And so the challenge is to constantly move from the one to the three and then back to the one and move from the three to the one and then back to the three. Listen to Gregory of Nazianzus again. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. I'm going to take a quick drink, and I want to give you guys 30 seconds to talk to the person next to you and just ask, what's one question you have about the Trinity? Go, 30 seconds. I'll bring you back. So many questions. (laughs) All right. So far, we have looked at why the doctrine of the Trinity is important for your salvation, faith, and worship. We've looked at what the doctrine actually is, and we've learned to start saying those three things, And just now, we've looked at what the doctrine is not. We've seen the twin dangers of mere monotheism and tritheism. But with the rest of this talk, what I want to do is draw your attention to something. I think, on the whole, we as evangelicals, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, I think, on the whole, we have forgotten the doctrine of the Trinity. I think we've forgotten the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me explain what I mean. The first thing to know is that from the first century, all the way through to about the 18th century, there was a clear and unbroken tradition of consistent Trinitarian theology. Across the early church, Protestantism, even Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholicism, there was almost total agreement about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there are some pretty major differences uh, when it comes to other doctrines between, say, Protestantism uh, and Catholic, but when it comes to the Trinity, it's practically unanimous. You open almost any theological textbook from almost any century between the 1st and the 18th, and it will almost certainly say exactly the same thing about the doctrine of the Trinity. And sure, there are some subtle differences, but on the whole there was a clear and consistent tradition. Um, I've got a little timeline there, if you find that helpful. But come down to the 21st century, and to evangelical Christians in particular, which is us, and it's a very, very different story. Firstly, we're confused about what the doctrine actually is. Back in 2020, an organisation called Lifeway they conducted a survey of what American evangelical Christians actually believe. There were four questions in that survey about the doctrine of the Trinity. And the surprising thing is that the majority of the people in that survey answered three out of four answers heretically. That is, in disagreement with what Christians have always believed. And... The one question where they they did get it correct, it was only 53%. So, we're confused. But why are we so confused? Matthew Barrett is one of a number of theologians who've made the case that we've forgotten the Trinity. We don't know what we're meant to believe or why we're meant to believe it. Have a listen to what he says. Many evangelical churches and pastors know they are supposed to affirm the Trinity, and so they do. But if they're being honest, they have no idea why, other than to say, the Bible says so somewhere, right? Though they're not sure what that verse might be. Ask them to articulate the same Trinity according to biblical orthodoxy, and they will return a blank stare he says, you may be giving me one right now. There's a few shots fired. (laughs) But the question needs asking. If we as 21st century evangelicals have potentially forgotten the doctrine of the Trinity, then what on earth happened over the last few hundred years? I've got another little timeline for you there. What happened? in that gap between the 18th century to now? Well, with about the last third of our time together in this first session, that's the question I want to explore. I want to suggest that over the past few centuries, three challenges were laid against the doctrine of the Trinity. Three challenges were laid against the doctrine of the Trinity and, on the whole, we believed them and that's why we've forgotten the Trinity. So, what are they? One, it's not in the Bible. Two, it's not coherent. And three, it's not practical. The Trinity is not in the Bible, not coherent, and it isn't practical. So, let me take you through each of them and show you how they led to us forgetting the Trinity. First challenge, it's not in the Bible, and we could start with the simple observation that the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible, or that other certain buzzwords like persons or essence don't appear in the Bible. Now, at one level, that's a pretty weak argument in and of itself, because there are heaps of things that we believe in that aren't words in the Bible. For example, the word mission doesn't appear in the Bible. Well, we're pretty happy to talk about that. But there is actually a far stronger challenge here that has gained a lot of traction over the last few hundred years. The argument goes back to a guy named Adolf von Harnack. What a name! Adolf von Harnack. He lived in the 1800s and he noticed that all these buzzwords like person and essence. They were all words that were drawn from the language of Greek philosophy. And so he concluded that the doctrine of the Trinity is really only the result of Greek philosophy infiltrating and corrupting what he called the pure gospel of Jesus. Um, This is how he put it back in 1886. Dogma, doctrine... In its conception and development is a work of the Greek spirit on the soil of the gospel. Put simply, the Trinity isn't in the Bible. It's all just Greek philosophy, dirty Greek philosophy, laid over the top of the Bible, ultimately corrupting it. That's the first challenge that has led to us forgetting the Trinity. And it's worth us actually just stopping for a moment to acknowledge that this challenge does actually get something right. We should never be more attached to our theological buzzwords than to the Bible itself. Listen to what the great reformer John Calvin wisely said once about all these buzzwords. We're going to hear a lot of these buzzwords over the next few days, but this is what John Calvin says. I wish these terms were buried... "...if only among all men this faith were agreed on, that the Father and Son and Spirit are one God, yet the Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit the Son, but that they are differentiated by a peculiar quality." Which is actually quite similar to those three things we were learning to say. He says, "...really, I am not indeed such a stickler to battle doggedly over mere words." That's some wise words. So, there is something helpful about this first challenge, but how would you know if you've been influenced by this kind of thinking? It comes out in something called Biblicism, which, although it sounds like a good thing, is actually a bad thing. Um, Biblicism says, no creed but the Bible. I don't need any of that fancy theology. All I need to make sense of the Bible is me, myself, and my leather-bound ESV. Somebody's like, oh. <laughs> um, It says, I'm objective, I'm unbiased, and everyone else is biased. Can you see the problem with that kind of thinking? It says, I don't have anything to learn from anyone, especially those who've gone before me. It's proud. And just as a quick aside... All the big heretics over the centuries, they all thought that they were the Bible guys. This is the kind of thinking that leads to the belief that the Trinity isn't in the Bible. That's how von Harnack thought. Have you ever been tempted to think like that? But that's only the first challenge. The second challenge says the doctrine isn't coherent. It doesn't make sense. And at one level, some people might think it's a contradiction to claim that God is both one and three. And to some extent, people have always thought that the Trinity's hard to understand. But this has actually gotten a little sharper over the last few hundred years. It goes back to a man named René Descartes. He lived in the 1600s and he famously said these words, I think... Therefore, I am. And with that one short sentence, he gave birth to what's called rationalism. Rationalism is the idea that we can really only be sure about things that originate in human reason, rational thinking. That's what he meant when he said, I think, therefore, I am. Put simply, it's a way of viewing the world that sees human reason working its way out into the world, and ultimately up towards God. You can see a little diagram there. It starts with human reason and works its way out from there. But all of that means that only things that seem reasonable to the human mind are seen as being valid. If something can't be figured out just with human reason then it either doesn't exist or it's of no significance whatsoever. But that creates a problem for the doctrine of the Trinity because, as we saw before, God is totally unlike anything else in this creation. No matter how hard we think about it, we will never arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity doesn't come from the human mind. Why? Because the good news of the Gospel is that God, specifically the Son, He came down to us and He stepped into this world as a man. It's not us working ourselves up to God, it's Him coming down to us. see a little diagram there. The triune God reveals Himself to us. See, the claims of Christianity are fundamentally different to the claims of rationalism. Rationalism starts with human reason and works its way out from there, but in the Gospel, God comes down to us. Now, why does this matter? It matters because the doctrine of the Trinity is a real mind-bender. It's a mind bender. I remember walking out of my first lecture uh, on the Trinity back at Bible College and I thought to myself, I have no idea what just happened. Uh, Actually, as I've been preparing these talks, what I feel like I've been doing is trying to give a nice, simple, clear explanation of quantum mechanics. It's complicated. See, there are things that we won't and can't understand about God's triune nature. And there are one of two ways that we can respond to that. If we've been influenced by the rise of rationalism, we'll conclude that if we can't fully understand it, then it isn't true. But if God really is triune, which means He's infinitely more than we could ever grasp or imagine, our response should be one of humility, knowing that God won't fit inside our tiny heads. But that doesn't mean we should just throw our hands in the air and say, it's all a mystery. That would be to fall into the danger of mysticism. Mysticism is actually just the other side of the coin to rationalism. See, just like rationalism, mysticism also believes that the doctrine doesn't make sense. The only difference is that mysticism says we should believe in something that doesn't make sense. It's content to believe a contradiction. It says in a hushed, pious voice, it's simple. But the problem with this kind of thinking is that the Bible doesn't talk about a mystery as being a contradiction. See, the Bible does talk about things being a mystery, but it doesn't talk talk about them as being a contradiction. It talks about mysteries as something that was previously hidden, but has now been revealed. Have a look at how Paul talks about the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now, in this particular case, The mystery that Paul is talking about is that Jews and Gentiles are united in Christ. But the whole point of the mystery is that something that was previously hidden is now revealed, made known. It's no longer a mystery. Which is exactly what's going on in the doctrine of the Trinity. What was previously unknown to human reason became known known, through revelation. Which means we aren't called to believe a contradiction, rather we're called to come to know God as He has revealed Himself to be, to conform our thoughts to His. But there is one final challenge we need to wrap our heads around. The third challenge simply says, the doctrine isn't practical. And this challenge really flows on from what we saw with rationalism. It says that if we have no direct access to God through human reason, then God can play no significant part in shaping how we think about the world, how we engage with the world. This is what the great Enlightenment thinker Immanuel Kant had to say about the Trinity. He said this the doctrine of the Trinity, taken literally, has no practical relevance at all, even if we think we understand it. Now, you might say, Who cares? He's just a philosopher. I can't care less what he says. (laughs) Thank you. That's what Kant said. But there were some theologians, Christians, who believed him. There was one in particular. His name was Friedrich Schleiermacher. You probably haven't heard of him, but he was a heavyweight theologian in the 19th century. And he concluded that really, in the end, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't have Any practical significance for the Christian faith. This is how he put it. It's a bit. He he writes in a weird way. He says, The main pivots of the ecclesiastical Christian doctrine are independent of the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words, the Trinity has no relevance to the Christian faith, it's of no practical significance. And because of that, Schleimacher effectively tossed the doctrine aside. Now, maybe you've never heard of Schleimacher, and maybe you couldn't care less. But how would you know if you've been influenced by this kind of thinking? I think think we see it come out in a kind of consumerism, which says that all this theology stuff sounds super dry, It sounds impersonal and cold. I mean, where's the life? Let's keep things practical. After all, wasn't that the problem with the Pharisees? You know, they spent all their time arguing about the Bible without ever doing what it said. Isn't that what we're doing when it comes to the Trinity? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And while there is something helpful about that kind of desire, to, um, to be transformed by the Word of God, we need to be very careful that we're not just wanting to get something from God in the name of being practical. Look at what the theologian Scott Swain says about this. "'Learning to praise the Trinity does not derive its importance or usefulness from its ability to serve other enterprises.'" Learning to know the triune God, to receive the triune God, to rejoice in the triune God and learning to help others to do the same is an end in itself because the triune God is the ultimate end of all things. Let me remind you of the question though we're trying to answer with all of this. How did we come to forget the doctrine of the Trinity? How is it that we came to give a blank stare when asked about the Trinity? What happened is that first, we believed it wasn't in the Bible. Then we believed that it wasn't coherent. And then the third and final move was when we believed it wasn't relevant. That's what Schleiermacher did, he tossed it aside. Grace City, this is how we, as 21st century evangelicals, forgot the Trinity. And maybe you've never heard of some of those thinkers, but we are living in the wake of their scepticism about the Trinity. So, what's the plan for the next three talks? Each of the next three talks over this weekend will actually be a kind of response to each of these challenges. Three talks, tackling three challenges. So, in our second talk this afternoon, we are going to tackle the first challenge that says the doctrine of the Trinity isn't in the Bible. My aim will be to show you that, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical. In our third talk tomorrow morning, we are going to take on that second challenge which says the doctrine isn't coherent. And my aim will be to show you that, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is coherent. But then in the fourth talk, we will take on that third challenge, which says the doctrine isn't practical. And my aim will be to show you that, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is not only practical, it's life-transforming. So, three talks, the Trinity and the Bible, the Trinity and theology, and the Trinity and life But just before I pray to wrap up this talk, let me encourage you with the words of Augustine of Hippo, one of the great 4th century theologians. Um, If you're feeling a little overwhelmed by everything we've covered so far, let Augustine's words be an encouragement to you. He says this about the Trinity. In no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. As we set sail on this journey, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for revealing yourself as Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray that we might come to know, love, and worship you as you are, and as you have been from eternity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we stay close to your word, learn from others, and profit richly as we do this. We pray it in the name of your son. Amen.